It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. So what are the perils of being in a position of public leadership in the Jewish community or elsewhere in the world of ideas, and the peril of knowing that sometimes people are listening, is that sometimes I don't exactly know what to say, and sometimes I don't know whether not knowing what to say, saying something or not saying something, is contributing positively or negatively to the climate around us that demands interpretation. For several weeks now, our show has been on hiatus, conveniently or inconveniently timed to the several weeks ago outburst of new rounds of violence in Israel and between Israelis and Palestinians. Depends on where you start the clock. We're not a history show here, but the immediate prompt for the outburst of this violence were Palestinian protests about a planned eviction of a number of families from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem, followed by violence on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, including an IDF incursion into the Temple Mount, followed by a barrage of rockets that came from Hamas into parts of Israel that is ongoing, the largest barrage of rockets that we have seen ever, as well as now Israeli retaliation with shelling and bombardment in Gaza. And right now in our public media culture, the notion of holding conflicting feelings is viewed as failure. No version of complexity or nuance registers particularly well in 140 or 280 characters, especially when so many stakeholders in this conflict, whether they're Israelis, Palestinians on different political sides, or whether in the American Jewish community, are seeking clear messages of support for their side. I work, as you know, with the Shalom Hartman Institute around both the issue of helping American Jews stay connected to Israel as a major piece of our moral agenda of Jewish life, caring deeply about issues like Jewish peoplehood, but also as part of our work trying to hold a Jewish community together around Israel, caring about the idea of Jewish pluralism. As I've said on other occasions, the primary casualties of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are Israelis and Palestinians, but I don't want to create a situation in which an additional casualty of that conflict is the American Jewish community. Nevertheless, as I said, sometimes I don't totally know what to say, and these last couple of weeks have been one of those moments. And so instead of trying to write and rewrite, as I've done, various Facebook posts or tweets, which sometimes do more harm than good, I wanted to see whether we could have a thick conversation on Israel and Zionism and Jewish public leadership right now, and a slow one, acknowledging that it's far away. Both Vegas and I are based here in North America and not under the assault of the current moment, but to see whether it might be helpful principally to the two of us, but maybe to our listeners as well, in trying to navigate their complicated feelings in this moment. So my guest today is a returning guest to Identity Crisis. Rabbi Dr. Ethan Tucker is the president and Rosh Yeshiva of the Hadar Institute, 
and a close friend. And I'll say in disclosure, the person who I turn to, whether on WhatsApp or text message or sometimes on a long walk to talk through some of these issues. And now we're going to try to do it in public. Ethan, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Yehuda. Always good to talk to you and similarly feeling like words are failing in the contemporary moment. So let me start just personally. How have you been feeling for the last couple of weeks? What is the experience of watching this from afar look like and acknowledging that you and your family have spent many years actually living in Israel, kind of toggling back and forth a little bit. So you've been on both sides of the water during these conflagrations. What has this experience of the last couple of weeks been like for you? Yeah, a huge stomachache and a huge sense of anguish. You know, I think we'll get to playing this out. For me, it very much starts from a place of before I get anywhere else, family and friends are under attack there. That's both in the broader mythic sense of the Jewish people or my extended family. But literally for me, my sister, my sister-in-law, my father-in-law, there's just there's people on the ground who are so deeply connected to. And the other thing that it's really brought home, you mentioned that we've been privileged to spend some time toggling back and forth, at least the last time we were there for two years in Tel Aviv. It was sort of at the height of the lull, if you can use that phrase, <laughs> in terms of really any kind of conflict of this sort breaking out. And just a reminder that even when it's not raging there, there's a sense that, well, you're between rounds and very much feeling that we're at this next round now. Yeah, there's also that weird thing that some will argue, especially on the political margins, that it's the lulls that are worse, because at least when there's violence, then people are aware of the conflict of the occupation, etc. And the lulls are the time when you get to be literally lulled into a sense of complacency about an enduring problem. Let's talk a little bit about that question of family and friends. I think this is something that you and I share, although I don't want to put words in your mouth, of a certain basic foundational commitment that at least is the case for me as a Zionist that I'm aware is subject to a certain type of criticism about ethnocentrism, about favoring your own, but it's in some ways unavoidable that in some sense there is a basic commitment to the Jewish people that remains important for me and very, very hard for me to interrogate, I can make up a moral argument about, of course, like most philosophers will say, we don't really believe in moral universalism. We have our own, we have our kin. And in order to care about the other, I have to first care about self. But that's a harder claim to make when you're 7,000 miles away. It's a harder claim to make when Israel is and acts like a Middle Eastern nation state in the middle of the Middle East. But it does still run pretty deep for me that there is some basic distinction between my people and not my people, and that that is morally instructive. I wonder how you think about that, because it's important to start from the sense of family, because when we talk about peoplehood, we are taking a literal experience of family and turning it into a metaphor. But how do you then play out the morality of that metaphor of peoplehood and particularism, especially in a moment like this? Yeah, I mean, I certainly have that ground norm. And as you say, that's difficult for me to interrogate from a distance. I'll up you one <laughs> in the sense of it's not just sort of the Jewish people and their well-being. And on some level, when you've got, let's quibble, 40%, 50%, whatever it is of the Jewish people that's in the land of Israel right now, it's hard to me to imagine how you have any notion of affiliation with loyalty to that group without it translating into some sort of baseline relationship with the state that they live in. But let's go beyond that. I would say I have that relationship fundamentally with Zionism, which is to say that it is a noble, laudable, and necessary endeavor 
for the Jewish people as a collective to have a state that they are responsible for, in which they are the majority and are the masters of their own fate. And as I say that to you, I totally recognize how that's not self-evident certainly when approached from a philosophical stance. But just to sort of understand myself and where I come from, that's my starting point. And maybe we'll get into this a little bit. I think the universal equality of all human beings and the notion that every human being is created in the image of God is also a fundamental ground norm for me. It's the first ground norm in the Torah, starting from chapter one. So on some level, it's the basis on which everything is constructed. And yet there's a way, yes, when I'm thinking about Zionism and not just about human flourishing on the globe, a starting point for me is, well, of course there has to be a self-determined Jewish collective, and there is one. And what's even the point of talking about that in theoretical terms? And then the question is, how do we play out those commitments to universal equality in the context of that project? But therein, it seems to me, lies the rub in the current moment. And here I want to say this really with all generosity. I think there are many people, but not just many people, many Jews, many American Jews, for whom really the starting point is a certain commitment to universal human equality to the extent that Jewish collectivism can fit into that, that's great, particularly if Jews need that to defend themselves. But really, on some level, the collective nationalist expression of the Jewish people is an idea to be interrogated against the backdrop of that more fundamental human equality. You can hear, I've been struggling, I'm interested to hear how you would engage this. I've been struggling with the language to put on how I feel about that, because I find it's so stale to be like, well, some people care more about the Jews and some people care more about human beings. And I think there's a way to actually suggest that people might care about both, but be sequencing them in a sort of different way with respect to the local project of the state of Israel and Zionism that then produces an inability to speak with one another. Yeah, I mean, I've worked this out for myself because I I think there's a pretty clear way to read the sources that you mentioned, human beings creating the image of God, and then the narrowing of the biblical story from saying we care about all human beings being created in the image of God, but we see the way in which to narrate the transformation of the world towards fulfillment of that vision through the story of a particular family. So I don't think universal in particular are really at odds with each other in the Torah. I don't think that story of us or them is entrenched in our sources in that way. One of the places that I feel like I've been studying it with colleagues over the last few years is the famous exchange between Hannah Arendt and Gershom Shalom after the Eichmann trial when Shalom from Jerusalem writes to Arendt in New York and says, whatever happened to your love of the Jewish people? And she says, I don't know where you came up with that term. That term doesn't really exist. But anyway, I don't even know what it means to love one's people. And she says, once upon a time, the Jewish people believed in God and acted in certain ways that were in commitment to that. And now this people only loves itself. What good can come from that? And the progressive argument is, aha, yes, Arendt wins the argument by pointing out to Shalom that caring only about the Jewish people creates a kind of ethnic narcissism. And I've read that for now several years and been like, wait, the argument's not over. Just because they stop talking to each other doesn't mean that Shalom concedes the point that your only choice is ethnic narcissism. There's a legitimate moral argument for some amount of kinship loyalty, 
right? And kinship loyalty, that's not just actual family, but that gets turned into a concrete political program. And then you can start narrating all the historical ways in the 19th and 20th century why the Jewish people actually need a kinship project and one that has some political teeth to attach to it. But I do think you're right. If you can't enter into that conversation, if your starting point is just human solidarity, then the issue is not Israel's actions in the world. The issue is actually Israel itself, the basic legitimacy of Israel as a nation state. Right. No, and I think that's right. There are often conversations I find myself in where it feels like either I'm in it or I'm observing it. People are litigating some local action in the context of a particular conflict like the present one. But really, it's kind of silly and beside the point, because it's not as if the ground conditions that create that conflict are particularly acceptable to one side or the other. So you're arguing over whether you should have flattened a building, which may be an important conversation, right? You and I would probably have a lot of cases where we would say, why did you flatten that building? Or you didn't need to do that. Or you weren't really under the level of threat that justified that. But you're sometimes talking to someone who, truth be told, they don't really think you should be flattening any building, <laughs> no matter how legitimate the target, because the whole picture is off. I mean, look, we saw this. I haven't sat down and read every word of it, but I know in Jewish currents over the past couple of weeks, pushing further and further, certainly in the context of Jewish curated discourse. What does it mean to actually either articulate or air the views of those who articulate? All of Zionism was a mistake. And that's another way of getting at what does feel like a divide. It's one thing to have a conversation with someone where you take your present moment for granted, and then the question is, what's the best way for me to move forward? It's an entirely different conversation to look back and say, I actually think we took a wrong turn as a people. So personally, as a Zionist, that's the point where I can have an intellectual discussion of that sort, but if I'm honest, there's a certain point at which I kind of shut down just because not imagining that as a possible conclusion, I don't know how to have that conversation at that point. Yeah, and I will say personally, I guess this is similar, that I can intellectually understand the argument that says, a person says, I'm opposed to all forms of nation state. I think all nation states are bad. In that context, I'm interested in dismantling all nation states around the world and pursuing a new world order. I think it's a bad political philosophy. I think there's a good reason why it's a bad political philosophy. But it kind of makes sense to me that a person would then say, I refuse to make an exception for the Jewish people. It's very hard for me to understand it as a specifically Jewish argument, and it's very hard for me to understand when the state of Israel is held up as the exemplar of the problem of the ethnic nation state. And it is very difficult for me, and I confess this, and I want to switch us over to this in a second. It's very difficult for me to experience no Jewish sympathies for the basic legitimacy of the project. And you referenced Curran, so this was the dumb Twitter fight that I got in the other day and immediately regretted it. It never is fulfilling of a piece that was published in Jewish Currents, which argued for the basic legitimacy of Palestinian resistance, including that of Hamas, by any means necessary. And I said, it's unconscionable for this to be in a Jewish publication. And the piece of the critique that I got back was, well, can it be in any publication or is it specifically a Jewish publication? And my answer is, of course, specifically a Jewish publication. But let me flip to this for a second. There is a Jewish moral and religious argument that says, okay, you want me to take this seriously, the state of Israel seriously. You want to acknowledge that this is just a part of what it means to be a contemporary Jew. And therefore, 
the religious posture I'm going to take in the world is to be a moral critic of it all the time in public. And it's precisely the adamancy of your insistence that this matters that is going to fuel the adamancy of my moral critique. And now, I guess this is a bigger question, which is, that's the prophetic instinct, right, of our tradition. I'm not supposed to be out on Twitter defending the state of Israel. I should be out on Twitter because I care about the state of Israel, because I know it's inevitable that it will be there, that my job is to actually be the loudest outspoken critic from a place of deep Jewish particularism. So I think that makes sense, and yet I also feel like it has my limits. What are its limits for you, or what's the calculus? I have a couple of thoughts on that. You know, the first thing I really want to emphasize here, which I think is very important, I don't think we do anyone any favors by painting people's thoughts about Zionism in the worst possible light. Right. So I certainly resent it if someone, because of my basic orientation as a Zionist, immediately is going to dismiss me as an ethno-nationalist who doesn't care about the universal freedoms, rights, etc. I resent that. I mean, I think that does no good. I think it also does no good when people are extremely agitated about all the inequalities that Palestinians and Israeli Arabs and all kinds of contexts suffer from and live through to suggest that Jews who raise that, the main thing you need to know about them is that they're disloyal. That's just off, right? In other words, all the people that I know who even I disagree with very strongly on this, they wake up in the morning agitated about this because they genuinely care about human beings not living under oppression. And the way they see the world, they see that there are people under oppression and they feel that they and their extended people, group, affiliate, whatever we want to say, at least can be described as being responsible for it. And that, as difficult as it can be for me to say in a given context of argument, I think it's very important to say that comes from a noble place of caring about people. And in particular, if you want to have a dialogue or an exchange and you think someone's miscalibrated on that, you have to start from that place. I don't think we do a good enough job. Certainly the Zionist establishment does not do a good enough job in acknowledging the origin of that. That's my sort of first point on that. The second thing I would say, you know, you mentioned the prophets. Talk about the Nevi'im. And I've felt this for some time. The prophets that we read, and particularly in the way that we read them in the synagogue, they scream, they're vicious, they had no patience for the kings, and, you know, I'm sure very few people wanted to have dinner with him. And at the end of the day, they come back and say, but I love you, and I want you to succeed. And even when they say you're going to be off in exile, the final word is, but God is going to bring you back and redeem you. And that, to me, actually makes all the difference. In other words, when sometimes people take a pot shot at someone for, why are you so angry about this? Why are you so angry? Okay, yeah, there might be a reason to be angry. But I do want to see, and maybe we'll get to this piece, something that to me is very important for people who are going to assume positions of leadership is you have to be able to turn the corner if you're committed to the Jewish people and say, I'm actually rooting for you, and I actually believe in you, and I find you're falling short here, and that's why I'm calling it out. So I find the prophetic tradition kind of useful as a parallel and useful as a parallel 
for reminding ourselves, I actually think, the synthesis that they at least endeavored to embody. So let's talk about that, because it's the question of a use of capital. There's a whole strategic question to this, and it's a question for you, and it's a question for me. When do I choose to use my capital, which is mostly voice? That's the primary capital that I have at my disposal is voice. When do I choose to use it in defense of the state of Israel and the defense of the Jewish people? And I know people want it. I see it from my Israeli friends. They want to hear people say, we stand with you. As banal as it is, we want some expression of empathy or sympathy, in part because not only are you under assault from missiles, not only are you, in some cases, under assault based on policies you didn't even vote for as an Israeli, but you're also under an assault in terms of your narrative in the national community. I get the desire for that. And when do we use our voice and our capital for the alternative, which is, no, you know, I know you need to hear that from me, and maybe there's some version of doing that where I can do both. Oh, you never really do both. You're always kind of throwing one away for the other. And what I really need to do is put my capital. So let's talk first personally, and then we can talk about the field, rabbis, etc. How do you make that calculus? And maybe it's a little different for you and I, because as we've joked about recently, you get to teach Torah all day, and that's great. <laughs> but when do you feel like, you know, this is the moment I have to figure out how to use my capital around Israel, around Zionism, around the Jewish people in a moment of crisis? So my main answer on this is that I actually feel this is part of what is tearing me apart right now, and I actually feel very, very uncertain about in all kinds of ways. And I'll sort of narrate it this way. I think one of the challenges that you and I and whatever we represent are going through is our parents experienced 1967. Our parents went through a kind of wondrous amazement at a turn in Jewish history that just completely captured them. And we grew up firmly in the reality created by that, such that what it was to be a committed Jew for us growing up, it was just sort of like a given that Israel and that turn in Jewish history, it was working, it was sort of on the ascendancy, it had a power, a spiritual and moral power, etc. And even to the level, for those of us who had a religious context to that, rituals around that. Of course, he said, Hallel on Yom mode. I mean, unless you were like a rabid Nature Karta person, it was just what you did. It was the basic, almost naive reading of Jewish history without anything complicated about it. And we're now in a moment where particularly folks, we can pick the age, you know, under whatever the age is that we pick, for whom, no, actually the entire experience of Israel is not just post-Lebanon war, <laughs> but post-Intifada, post the collapse of Oslo. I mean, Oslo is something way back in the rear mirror. And so the whole context, not saying anything sophisticated, you're right, but the whole context is different. But here's the sense in which I feel it. So when... A basic reality of and agreement and acceptance of Zionism is sort of in the background. I'd say when I thought about capital around the question of Zionism in Israel, I was like, I don't need to expend any capital on that because it's simply just a part of the fabric of who I am, what Jewish life is. And it's like no less and no more important than that. It's not something I ever felt I had to shry about all the time, like, you know, screaming, this is beleaguered and under attack. Nor is it something that felt like many aspects of were controversial. Go forward to 2021, it feels like, even in the past month, it feels to me like we're in a dramatic tipping point on this, where just, I think the simple way to put it is so much more is up for grabs. But you might go further and say, actually, 
right? A lot of people, some of the people writing in Jewish currents now, they have shifted dramatically over the past decade. I mean, there were people who were way to my right, who I thought of as borderline crazy religious nationalists, who now have flipped all the way over to my left with a kind of paradigm shift. So to answer your question, on some level, I don't want the dynamics of Jewish life and all the subcultural and religious building projects that are about that to be totalized by an Israel debate or by an Israel narrative. And that leads to sort of the instinct of, I never wanted this to be like a complete overwhelming thing. I want to be able to, to teach Torah, bring in a broad group of people. Okay, it's people with different views, but we can get together. We can daven, we can learn, we can do all of these things. But when you're in a world that gets increasingly polarized, what happens when people start to experience the silence or the quietness in both directions as actually abdicating responsibility on the main question of the day? But the problem that I always feel is, so it can feel like, well, the rising to the moment is to figure out how to sound your voice in that moment. But I think it is not, <laughs> it, it is not wrong to recognize that the more one is sucked into that dynamic, the more that becomes the only thing you will ever talk about with everyone. Now, that a little bit depends also on institutional goals, alignments, like what's the project? Obviously, if I had gone into working at APAC as my career, so, well, of course, so that's what you're doing, right? But I have a lot of sympathy and angst and anguish on behalf of many of my rabbinic colleagues in pulpits and in all kinds of contexts where this could easily take over and define their shul. And even if they're a Zionist and a strong Zionist, they don't necessarily want that to be the sort of overwhelming dividing line in every conversation. I'm curious how you're processing that bit. Yeah, it's interesting that you describe it in reference to personalities who have shifted over the past 10 years from, from your right to your left. Maybe that's partly what happened. Maybe, maybe the culture shifted. Maybe the policies shifted. Maybe people became so convinced that this is entrenched to the point that there's point of no return. I mean, every week since 1967, somebody has made the argument that, okay, now the occupation has reached this point of no return and that therefore that obligates the change in our politics. But I feel I've had a similar whiplash in that I've always been very uncomfortable with the notion that like what it means to be a Jewish leader is to basically do Hasbara for the state of Israel, for the ID efforts, for its government. If anything, like I don't need to do my bona fides, but like there was one time I gave a talk at APAC of all places on the intellectual history of anti-Zionism. And it wasn't in order to be able to give Zionist talking points against anti-Zionists. It was a pluralism argument. Here's the limud schut, the charitable reading that you can make and how somebody could read the same sources that you're reading and come to a different conclusion, whether it's secular anti-Zionism or religious anti-Zionism. I have taught about the Nakba for years, precisely because I think if you're going to be a Zionist, you better come to terms with the fact that someone else has a completely different narrative than your own, and there's no point morally or politically in erasing it. And when I've taught in that curriculum, for instance, there's always been a reckoning with we as Jews are going to have to confront narratives of justice around Israel-Palestine, and we're going to have to confront the morality of self-preservation, and we're going to have to ask, when do these values come into conflict with one another? 
for so many of my audiences, I felt for the last decade that the morality of self-preservation and the basic commitment to Jewish peoplehood were secure enough, stable enough, that what we needed to do was agitate on the side of the morality of justice, the ethic of peace. You got to make that space. And now I just, maybe I got old. I don't know what it is, but something is like, no, no, actually, there's some amount of the basic legitimacy of self-preservation as a moral commitment that has to be brought into bear. And I'll tell you what is making me concerned about this is... There's no science here, Ethan, of like, here's how much you use the prophetic voice of criticism versus here's how much you use the prophetic voice of, I still love you and I care. There's no science to this. It's always, if you're to the right of the prophets, you're going to view them as basically off the cliff in one direction. If you're the left of the prophets, you're going to see them somewhere else. I guess what I'm struggling with is I don't like feeling as though the moral authority of criticism is owned entirely by people who don't share a basic commitment to what this is about. Because then it feels not just like, I don't want to be the self-preservation guy. It's I don't want to give up the language of a commitment to justice. I don't want liberal Zionism to lose that. I think that's been so important for liberal Zionism is, no, we believe in democracy. This is supposed to be a democracy. And all the language of peace process and two-state solution, regardless of how plausible it is, was a means of maintaining a moral North Star. And that moral North Star is basically being lost to a version of a telos for Israel that I just find, I find untenable. Yeah. Everyone's always offering, different groups are offering their assessment of, okay, now the occupation is permanent enough that we can't ignore it. That goes to a larger piece here, which I find is another divide in all kinds of political and framing ways, which is, what is your time frame? Now, you started off saying, well, we're not doing history, but I'm going to try to give you the background of the recent conflict. And okay, so you're not picking a time frame, but you are picking a time frame, right? You have to pick a time frame. So great, started at Sheikh Jarrah, and then we can put it back earlier and put it back early. But forget about the blame question for a minute, right? The who started it, the whose fault piece. So we can ping pong back and forth on that in all kinds of ways. But there's a different issue, which... I can only speak about it from the Jewish perspective, but I think there's for sure a Palestinian and more general Arab perspective on this that divides in different ways as well. What's the time frame of your concern? Do we see ourselves in 2021 as fundamentally just right after the Holocaust? <laughs> like we're just literally emerging from it. Like people are still alive who went through it. And I'll put it in crass terms here just to sort of illustrate it. But not because for me, it boils down to this. And it's just too soon for us to be the bad guys, right? It's too soon because that was yesterday. So there's a lot to figure out, but that's too soon. Or what are you crazy? We're 75 years after that. It's whole generations that have grown up without that. It's a nuclear power, all of the ways in which there's security. And I don't think that's just a kind of geopolitical historical question of where do eras end and begin. There's something that's halfway between an emotional, mythic, and practical, even to use your language, sort of justice-oriented question of what's my frame? I mean, I don't need to tell you, for sure, some of the divides in Israel historically over the decades were between a more right-wing mentality that was 100% about 
This is still Milchemet Atzma'ut. This is just the continuation of the War of Independence. Yeah, we'll get to figuring out once there's a border and everything's said and we've been fully accepted how we deal with everyone who's in that space, as opposed to the other camp, which has been significantly weakened now, which is, what do you mean? We're here. We made it. We established a state. Okay, got to get the house in order, like no more excuses. But thinking about that more broadly and looking forward, I mean, you even have voices. I think some of the voices on this on the Israeli right are completely cynical that talk about, well, eventually we'll deal with this. And it's just a way of kicking it down the field. I think there are other voices that are hard line, but that genuinely are simply saying, no, we need another century to work this out. And that's where you run into the problem. I think it's a twofold problem of, I think it's hard to talk across that divergent sense of sort of time scale. Like how much time do you have to sort of play something out? And then you also have the problem of the way that the media works, the way we consume things, the way we are exposed to things on a minute by minute basis. The notion that you're going to have a hundred year mentality when there's a hundred news cycles in a week, it's actually too much for the human mind to bear, I find. And there is an aspect there. It's probably beyond the scope of this conversation, but I've been thinking about a lot as someone who, as an undergraduate, did history of technology as one of my focuses. How much actually of the moment we're in is actually deeply anchored in the world of dispatches that we live in? You and I were kids growing up. I don't know. Maybe you got a new data point every month, maybe? <laughs> it's a different world. In a media landscape flooded with hot takes, we need an island of well-written, long-form essays. A place where deep thinkers articulate their ideas and others respond and challenge those ideas with passion and respect. The Shalom Hartman Institute is proud to announce a new quarterly journal of Jewish ideas called Sources. Significant ideas, beautifully expressed, crafted for Jewish thinkers like you. The inaugural issue features essays on the future of Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and a theologian's take on life during a pandemic. You can order a print subscription or read these essays online right now at sourcesjournal.org. I think some of this is also just about mortality. Remember a couple of years ago when I think it was David Gordas, basically after years of leadership of Jewish institutions said, I give up on Israel. I wash my hands of it. And what was embedded in his message was, I figured this was going to be solved in my lifetime. I think there's some measure of, I can't stomach the possibility that this will be an imperfect and unjust country process ideology in my whole lifetime. So I have two choices. Either I stick with it and it'll break my heart because I will die while it's still imperfect, or I will wash my hands of it, right? And you can wash your hands of it both ways. You could become an extreme right-winger and justify everything that Israel does because then it's all clean and easy, but the easier path to do it is to wash your hands of it. I think it tells a big story about mortality. How much cognitive dissonance can we have in our own lifetime? And I think you're right about the time horizon of this. I'll just give you little anecdotes. One was... I was talking to an activist a number of years ago who at the time was in their early 20s who said to me, can you imagine a scenario under which Prime Minister Netanyahu is not the Prime Minister of Israel? 
I said, yeah, eventually. But it became obvious this person had grown up with Netanyahu as prime minister for their entire lifetime. So why would you think that it could be otherwise? But there's something about that of like, there's a tragedy in this of trying to sustain this middleness. You see, it's why people run away from it. Why do I want to be in that discomfort of, I believe in it, it's imperfect, and I'm working to change it when you always feel like you're losing? Yeah, I think also what it's very helpful for is what I often find is not captured, which is when you think about the long-term arc as opposed to the short-term, it ought to help you also clarify what things are unavoidably messy in the short-term and what things are simply unacceptable even in the short-term. And just to sort of play that out, it's like, I'm not an activist on this issue, right? Either by profession or, quite frankly, by temperament. But if you ask me in terms of, you know, what riles me up <laughs> about this conflict in terms of what are we doing wrong, right? What are we as the Jewish people, as the state of Israel doing wrong? Most of the things that are in the category of Hamas, Gaza, status of the West Bank, what are the ways that that gets played out? I mostly have a longer term horizon on it. It does not seem to me you can solve it tomorrow. It is a product of all kinds of larger issues. There are many other players, including many other states who are in the mix here. It's not on Israel alone to resolve that. And then if you ask me, is there any defensibility to an Israeli Arab school or an Israeli Arab town getting one shekel less of funding for education or electricity or water, it's indefensible. It's a complete betrayal of the Torah's entire orientation of mishpat echad yelachem v'lager agaritchem, that what it means to be sovereign and to be responsible is you take care of everyone who is there. That's actually how you demonstrate your sovereignty. But that split, I find there's almost no one who's able to talk about that because everything gets either collapsed into the long-term picture. It's like, wow, this is an impossible conflict and we have a fifth column and this and all the ways people can reduce all the issues to that. Or everything becomes a human rights violation that must be addressed tomorrow or I'm done with you. And that just doesn't speak to me in terms of either the reality or the morality. Well, it's worse than that. It's actually, it's not a human rights violation that has to be solved tomorrow. It is evidence of an underlying irreparable ideology that I now am going to surface, that it's a white supremacist society that's an apartheid state. Because if it stays at the level of a human rights violation that has to be addressed, great, I'm with you. Sign me up. Where do I donate? How do I give? If it's no, it's evidence of something pernicious underneath this that is irreparable and it can only be dismantled, then it's very hard to deal with. We just did an exercise, my colleagues and I, in the research center on the difference between how do you take an existence of an injustice and separate the difference between what political science people will call a proximate cause or a root cause. What's the rational way to understand this? So like, you know, there's a 99% conviction rate in the West Bank because they're under military courts. If you want to go immediately to root cause, apartheid. If you start looking at proximate causes, well, it turns out that there's actually something close to a 99% conviction rate in Israeli non-West Bank courts, because there's a whole culture of conviction. That might be also unjust, but it means that you're going to be pushed into a place of something that's very different than assuming that it has to be an underlying ideological cause that pushes you away from this project. Let me go back to something you said before, though, Ethan. You said, and you were talking about rabbis, 
And what I guess saddens you a little bit, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, of the way in which Israel can become kind of a totalizing force in a rabbinate, in a community, it can kind of take over. It's everything that you do. And I, what I hear behind that is there's also got to be Torah. It's got to be something else, mitzvot, all the rest of the stuff of Judaism. I would love to hear from you some vision of, I get when people make that argument who are anti-Zionist. I get it when they say, we need to replace this totem that's at the heart of American Judaism with a different totem, <laughs> which is Judaism without Israel. But you're arguing, I think implicitly for something more sophisticated, which is a thick Judaism of Torah and mitzvot, in which Zionism is a major component, a significant commitment, but not the totalizing one. What do you want that to look like? What I want it to look like, I can give you the answer in sort of the big dream, and then maybe we can talk about how do we get there from the reality. I mean, in the big dream, the state of Israel as a cultural force, as a incubator for Jewish life and spirit, and ideally as a functioning state, which I'm not sure, not sure how much states can fit neatly into moral categories, but let's say a state that you feel has principles that it lives by, that you feel proud to say, even when we don't hit the mark, are standing for things that are important to me. That that's a reality. It's a vital force in the world. And alongside that, and this goes to my embrace of the diaspora that I know you share as well, that that also is not the only place where Jewish life and values get played out. And therefore, sure, there's a sort of an alternate mode, which is also not the majority sovereign state taking responsibility for Torah, other broader conceptions of Jewish values in that corporate space, but the ways Jews at their best both thrive in the diaspora and contribute to it. And everyone would kind of understand <laughs> that those two modes are contributing a lot. And there's a space for being in both of them. Some of us will go back and forth, but some people will actually naturally gravitate to it. You know, in that sense, like, I'm simultaneously allergic to the notion that Jews are at their best when they're powerless. And I also respect the notion that there's a lot of important work to be done in the world as God's servant, not as a state actor. <laughs> like, to me, those are just two both true statements I would want a world in which people can find their space in that, recognize what Zionism, Jewish collective expression through a state in the land of Israel makes possible that diaspora life never can, and that actually vice versa is also the case. Now, that's the rosy version of a situation where people are not feeling embarrassed or ashamed by the alternative model or feeling it's standing in the way of them moving forward. So there's no question that the current... Look, you can say this descriptively. I think anyone with open eyes can acknowledge that the occupation is bad for Israel. <laughs> That's a separate question of, is it necessary? Can you get rid of it? How? When? Etc. It's not good. It's not an asset that's adding, right? And in that sense, you're not going to, for as long as that is unresolved, going to have an uncomplicated relationship, certainly with American diaspora Jews, who, I don't know how much they're always completely self-aware of it, but are the beneficiaries of a remarkable diaspora that has enabled them to really trust in the universal rights of man, <laughs> for lack of a better term, in a way that a lot of other Jews did not feel they could put their eggs in that basket. 
So that's going to be a point of tension. And this goes to the leadership question. In that world, is there a way of moving people towards some kind of synthesis and appreciation? And I don't know. I have good days and bad days because there are days where I feel like anyone with eyes to see should be able to actually understand, particularly people who spend their time with Torah, right? Particularly people who spend their time with this supposed independent of state power asset. Where are all the books being printed now? <laughs> where are the scholars emerging from? Like, where's the ecosystem that you directly or indirectly are drawing on? Like, Torah once again comes forth not exclusively from Zion, but very meaningfully from Zion in a way it didn't. And on my good days, I'm like, I think people should be able to see that and then own and be a part of it. And in that sense, like, my Zionism is as much cultural as it is political in that sense, right? It's as much grounded in the revival of the Hebrew language and all of those questions. But on other days, I don't know whether delusionally or maybe actually there's just an alternate reality. I think there are a lot of Jews for whom Israel in that sense, I think, actually does feel dispensable. And this I say analytically, even without political judgment. I think I just saw a tweet from, if not now, a couple of days ago. It was like, you know, we have to show that we can build thriving diaspora Jewish communities and we don't need the state of Israel. Now, that tweet, never mind, is a lot of repressed hurt that unfortunately the Israeli and Zionist establishment has perpetrated on American Judaism for years through the Kotel and through all kinds of signals of delegitimacy. I, I get it on some level. I get the hurt 100%, and I felt pieces of it myself. But at the same time, it's a very striking formulation because it's basically a worldview that says, you know what, I could actually do without that, and I would be fine. Right, and part of this is just the natural consequence of American Judaism imported a lot of pride and dignity and story from Israel for a long time in service of the American Jewish project. And the consequence of the importing process is that over time, you're not just importing the good stuff, you're importing the bad stuff. And if that is at the heart of the project, it's going to start becoming easier to say, okay, now I just got to put this whole thing out. I think a simpler way of saying what you said is for many American Jews, the bad stuff that they're importing is just outweighing the good stuff, which mostly they can't access anyway because they're not reading it in the original language. They're not reading those books of Torah that you're talking about. They're not consuming Hebrew culture. And it's just, it's an inconvenient reality. And yet the positive flip side would be to say any version of liberal Zionism is going to also have to need diaspora Jews in this story precisely because we are the witnesses to the possibility of Judaism functioning in a non-state context. And we have to increase the import-export dynamic in the other direction. <laughs> the whole infrastructure, when people call for boycotting Israel because they don't like the fact that there's anti-democratic impulses, the only reason that there's a democracy industry in Israel is largely because of the largesse of American Jewish philanthropy. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not investing in Israeli democracy will ultimately reduce it. Last thing, Ethan, there was something poetic and weird about the release of the updated Pew study on American Judaism during this conflict. I felt this crazy whiplash as an American Zionist in this moment of like watching two stories and trying to figure out which is worth talking about. Of course, nothing is surprising anymore about demographic studies of American Jews. The long story of the disaffiliation, detachment from collective Jewish identity 
is just on display in this study. There's something poetic about these things hitting at the same time, and it made me feel real nervous about the future of thick liberal American Jewishness in this time. And by thick, I mean affiliated, committed, connected, both to the state of Israel and to, it could be denominational identity or it could be robust communal structures of obligation and membership and belonging. I know you're worried about that too. What do you see and hear when you see these two things together and what makes you concerned and what makes you hopeful? Well, I do think it's important to distinguish two stories. I think there's undeniably a big swath of American Judaism that has moved to a model where actually, you know, Jewishness as a binary on off all the way down identity that defines me is on the wane. And instead you have participation in Jewish life and Jewish practices at various degrees of connection. And that does not sit well with a sort of ironclad commitment to, okay, but I'm this kind of person. Those are my people. This is my project. And therefore, I got to work it through. And those two, I think, definitely track. There's another group, which is much smaller, but significant. And you and I learn with such people. Such people are our students, our colleagues, who are every bit all the way down, as you describe, strategically committed to Jewish life. And they're going to make all the strategic decisions in their life around whether it's walking distance to a synagogue or where they're going to send their kids or organizations they're going to devote their time to. And yet they are saying, I don't feel that Zionism is the way. That is to say, it's not a kind of attrition or atrophy of the Jewish peoplehood muscle. It's a different path, which on some level here, I'll go back to my comment of we were born in the sort of post-67 aura, in a way is a reset to the status quo ante on the status of Zionism in modern Judaism, which is controversial. And the fundamental question of is the best way to secure the Jewish future through collective joining together in one place with sovereignty or to work towards a society that allows us to have our multicultural expression within it, that's an old debate that hasn't gone away. What makes me aggravated, though, and at the good moments hopeful, <laughs> is that the difference between when they were slinging it out over that question in Europe in the late 1800s and early 1900s is that it was theoretical then. And now, on some level, to be an anti-Zionist or a non-Zionist is not to say, I don't think we should walk down that path. It's to, on some level, I think, futilely want to undo things that are realities. And I think something that does make me hopeful is, and maybe this is, you know, the religious aspect of my Zionism as well. If you think that Jewish statehood and sovereignty is not inevitable, and is always contingent and morally contingent, but nonetheless a telos of some process of the Jewish people, well, I don't think it's going to go away. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go away, certainly overnight. It doesn't mean Israel doesn't need defending. It doesn't mean there aren't concerns. And that reality means, I think, at the end of the day, we're going to have to find a way, all of us, to integrate with what it brings into the world. You and I might feel a little more proactively of, yes, and this was our plan and desire all along. I think part of what I am thinking about and how do I communicate to my students and younger students who I've yet to meet 
can they take on a kind of position of responsibility for the varied perspectives in the Jewish people on this question that's rooted in the reality of people's lives, like not the world as we would like it to be. And I think when people, even if they have tremendous moral questions, can come to that place of owning and being responsible for real realities on the ground and the ways Jews just in fact are distributed across the globe today, then I think we have a lot of people with a lot of good instincts and who care and are devoting their life to the Jewish people who I think with the right orientation can make a tremendous difference on that front. But it is a confusing time. You know, for David Hartman, in the founding of the Hartman Institute, I think there were two core ideas bigger than any others. One was the notion of Judaism as an interpretive tradition, that in any given moment we were obligated to interpret our tradition to make it sing and relevant for our time, both as a way of living in the world, but also as a way of continuing the tradition, but also that the state of Israel was the principal canvas for the Jewish people on which we were going to evaluate the quality of that tradition. I think my biggest hope is that you can't continue to do either of those projects without the other. You can't rely on Israel to simply be the canvas of the Jewish people without Judaism as an interpretive tradition. And I can't envision a world in which we create a flourishing interpretive Judaism that doesn't take seriously that the Israel that we want requires it or that views Israel as too inconvenient for flourishing of that tradition. I think more than anything that I hope for in the work that we're doing here in North America is the continuing intertwining of those two projects, even during times like this, as difficult as it may seem. So thanks to all of you for listening to our show this week, and special thanks to my guest, Ethan Tucker. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Harman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, please visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.